You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Eds. I'm Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor for Campus Review and Education Review. We missed last week's episode because two-thirds of the team was on annual leave, but we are back this week with a special presentation. Earlier today, Friday, I attended a fascinating roundtable discussion on the future of innovation in Australia, with specific reference to the role the education sectors, in particular universities, are playing in this brave new world. The discussion was curated by the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. On the panel was technologist and entrepreneur Paul Shetler, who is currently the CEO of Digital Transformation Office. Also on stage was social scientist Anne Moore, founder and CEO of Plan Do and former telco whiz, and now the founder of startup accelerator Muru D, Annie Parker. The fourth and final panellist was University of Sydney Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research, Professor Duncan Iverson. The voice asking all the questions and moderating the discussion is that of Kate Carruthers, and she's the Chief Data Officer at the University of New South Wales. During this conversation, the panel will answer the question, what is innovation? talk about what the most important degrees will be in the future, how to prepare grads for the world of work and business, and whether we need to put the A in STEM to create STEAM. The A stands for arts. It's a lively, interesting discussion with more than a few laughs to go with the insights. The first person you're going to hear is that of moderator Kate Carruthers. Paul Shetler is the man with the American accent, while Duncan Iverson has a subtler Canadian twang. Annie Parker is English and Anne Moore is Australian. The recording has picked up some incidental tinkling of plates and glasses and some background chatter that I hope you can forgive. Now, please enjoy this special presentation on the future of Australian innovation. The first question I wanted to uh, throw to each of you is, what the hell is innovation anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think um, innovation is an interesting word. It's uh, it's one that's used an awful lot. I, I think sometimes it just becomes an empty signifier. Um, but what it means to me um, is responding to the environment that you're in, typically under competitive pressure, doing things in a different way so that you can get do things better in the future. Um, if we're looking at you know um, the goal in Australia, as anywhere else, to have a flourishing society, preparing ourselves so that we can do that. Um, in the face of market pressures, in the face of competition from other people and other countries and other companies. So it's, it's the ability to, to respond and adapt to an environment which is changing and hopefully in a strategic way which also changes that environment. It's almost like you're ready to get you there. What do you see? My thing that I think is so important about what you just said, Ethel, is it's doing. You can't just write a strategy paper and say you're calling it your innovation and then not do anything. Um, it's whatever you choose to uh, change, do differently, as soon as you put whatever that is out into the real world, and then, then you get feedback. And then you understand a little more from your customers or your end users or whoever they might be as to whether or not the idea that you thought of actually worked. But if you don't do it in the first place, you'll never know. So the, the word for me really is the doing part that, that really makes it happen. It's also recognising that it's not always a great big giant of a thing. It can be incremental change. Uh, it can be standing on the shoulders of giant stuff where there's something that occurs to an individual, and to your point, Annie, it's not about great ideas. They're great ideas. 
it's the transformation into something that's going to be meaningful, that's tested. Um, and I think it's you know predominantly a mindset to begin with. It's how do we how do we shift to something better? How do we improve the lives of people that are going to be exposed to this product, this service, this technology? Uh, look, the only thing I'd add, um, aside from endorsing everything that's been said, is I think ultimately, for what we're thinking about, it's really about creativity and um, imagination. It's actually reimagining uh, uh, an idea or a concept or a product into a new, uh, into a new space. Great innovation is fundamentally about creativity and imagination, and how you do that, of course, in of different ways. But ultimately, that's where uh, the really transformative outcomes are going to come from. So for us, it's about creativity and imagination and how we spark that up. And with the Australian innovation agenda, do you see that there is an Australian innovation agenda? Is, is there Australian innovation? Oh, yeah, every single day of the week. I mean, I'm sure everyone will, will, will talk about it in their own context. I mean, one. Sure, innovation is becoming one of these potentially degraded uh, words that doesn't mean anything, it becomes empty, as, uh, as we heard a second ago. But there is extraordinary innovation happening every day uh, in the world I, I work in. Uh, really transformative innovation. And the challenge is for universities and uh, Australian companies and firms uh, to tell their innovation stories, but also to link together in ways that we haven't done before. That, for me, is one of the biggest challenges. What I've learned from Countries like Israel or Finland, United States, is the porosity between business, universities, industry, community organizations is much greater. And in Australia, we just have to, I think one of the challenges is linking what we do. And the more we do that, the, the less innovation becomes an agenda. That's another really dead word, agenda, innovation agenda. Um, you have a kind of, uh, I think what you want is a really uh, innovation nation, right? You want an innovation, innovative community. Uh, and for me, it's happening every day, every week uh, in Sydney, uh, and it's about connecting those uh, innovation centres. And I, I couldn't agree more. We have, um, just for the Sydney program of our accelerator, we get 200 applications pretty much each time we open that window. And only, I'd say, about 5% of them are repeat applications. So there's, there's absolutely no problem with great ideas and extraordinary minds in this country. Um, so anybody that says anything any different, you tell them that, well, frankly, it's bullshit, so. <laughs> it's also that translation of the fabulous ideas that are coming out of universities and accelerators like URD. And embedding that within industry, I think that um, although innovation is attractive to many organisations, there's an element of permission, and that is letting go and allowing organisations to succeed and fail on the basis of being innovative. Because unless we have that environment, although we love the rhetoric, the follow-through and the creation of new things is actually extremely difficult. So you're talking about innovation risk there mm. and our risk appetite. What, what can we do differently? Um, I, I think it's important to keep in mind is that you know, people don't and we, why would they want to innovate unless they really just are in love with that. Uh, 
they, they won't unless there's a reason to, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. People do things because they need to. Um, in government, right now, we are changing the way we do things, and we're, we're, we're taking new approaches to service delivery, we're getting things on much more quickly, and we're responding to user needs and actually developing things around what we need, because people in the rest of their everyday lives are used to, are, are now used to working that way, right? Because now, if you go online and you want to uh, access a service on the internet, the quality of that, the bar has been raised so high that we're under that same kind of competitive pressure now. We have to do that. But I think that's always um, what, what drives this. There is a competitive pressure. And although we talk about collaboration uh, an awful lot, and I agree that's really important, uh, another part of it is also competition. That's actually what drives the dynamic, and we can't forget that. What, are, what about um, setting innovation goals, like locking you in a room so everyone's been to a company where they say, let's go innovate. Yes, I do. I, you can't. So, I used to work in corporate land before I, I had the joy of, of moving into startups. And that old adage of, okay, so we, we need some new ideas. So, what we're going to do is we're going to put you all in a room and basically get you to say, brain, come up with new ideas immediately. Go. <laughs> How insane is that? Uh, I think it's the, is it an Albert Einstein quote of what's the definition of, of pure madness, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? How on earth can your brain come up with something new if you haven't given it a new input? You need to go out and look at what's happening in the world of your customer. How are they interacting with your product or what are, what are the problems that they face and how can you then use that as a an input to um, potentially what you might do next. I'll give you an example of what we used to do. So I used to work at O2 in the UK, um, so I'm, I'm kind of a telco through and through. And my team came to me one day and said, so we're out of ideas, so we need to go and get consultants in to come and write some reports for us. I went, yeah, no. And they said, well, what, how do we get more ideas? I said, all right. We'll split you up into groups. You guys are going to the South Bank. You guys are going to Oxford Street. You guys go to the Tower of London. Go and look at what our customers are doing with the product. And they went, what? So just do it. Just watch and see what you uh, When you see something interesting, just jot it down. Later on that afternoon, they all came back. They all had lots of observations. From those observations, 80 different ideas came. And that was just one afternoon. Now, clearly, you know, if you're in the shampoo business, that's hard to go and look at what your customers do with your product, because you know that's a bit weird, standing in the shower, something you've never met before. But the analogy, I think, is very true, that we, we often outsource the idea phase part because we don't think we can do it. And again, it's bullshit, we all can. We can all put ourselves in this, the shoes of our customers and think, what is it that frustrates me? And what is it that I would love to have? And that's all you need to do to inspire your brain to create different ideas. So, so you're looking at it as, I think, and he's right, you can't command innovation, but I mean, one thing at the university we're thinking a lot about is how we get our different disciplines working together in new ways. And of course, you have to be very careful because, uh, as some of my colleagues in the room will know, if the deputy vice chancellor, God forbid, should say, go forth and collaborate, they will do the opposite, just to uh, make a point. But, you know, so we have, something called the Charles Perkins Center, which is focused on obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. We've got philosophers, economists, biomedical researchers, policy experts, clinicians, 
in the same building, sort of woven into various processes and events and activities. And we're just, in a way, sitting back and watching what happens. And there's a lot of risk in that. But we're convinced that you will not tackle any of those massively important chronic diseases unless you have those interactions. Same thing in brain and mind science. Same thing in nanoscale science and technology. Uh, and you know that's where innovation can emerge. But it's a real art form to, to not force it and yet encourage it to grow. Duncan, what you're talking about there is an environment. And if we think about that at an organizational level, uh, innovation needs the right sort of environment to flourish. Mm. So having great ideas is fabulous. But we also need to look at the structures and the processes and the values and the culture of an organisation to embed and implement those ideas and give them the leads that they need to get traction. Anyone um, in an organisation who's dealing with a startup is probably aware of the uh, protracted procurement processes and the supply chain issues that you're facing and the strategic decisions. So there's a, there's a whole ecosystem that is fundamentally built on the legacies that we have of the way that business used to operate. The post-industrial model of command and control, to your point about let's command collaboration, not. Um, so how we actually uh, use better models to design our organisations that invite innovation. We're talking about more organic models, more biological models that are more able to adapt quickly to changing conditions that we see that demand the competitiveness uh, for organisations to survive and therefore the innovation. It's about structures and how we cradle innovation in very concrete ways in our organisations. So one of the things that uh, gets back to what you were talking about actually, um, when, we, when we develop our new services of government at, at, the, at the DTO and with the agencies that we work with, um, the teams that are doing that are not teams of developers uh, sitting by themselves who might have received the design from somebody else. Uh, but the teams that do that will have a product manager, will have a person who's responsible, sort of a scrum master delivery manager, who will have an ethnographic researcher in there who actually leads and sees what people actually do. We don't actually ask them questions so much about their experience as actually see in situ what's actually happening with them. We have the designers in the same team, we have the developers in the same team, and we have the technical architects in the same team. We also have the policy people in the same team. And the reason why is precisely what you said, which is that's when you get that multiplicity of different views on the same problem, and everybody's working as a team to solve it, you get you come up with things that otherwise you wouldn't. But it's not like sitting them in a room and say, do this. It's based on observation, it's based on direct feedback, and it's so important. So basically, you're talking about a new way of organizing, and that's, that's going to be hard for some businesses. So the, like, just like some companies still command control. So how might they be able to Innovative. Quickly, we hope. A lot of them want, a lot of them go to business. I mean, this is the fact of nature, right? Yeah. You, 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 you compete, you're in a competitive landscape. If you can't adapt to your environment, then somebody else who adapts better to the environment will consume you or you'll die. Um, the problem, from our perspective, from a governmental standpoint, is that would really be a very bad thing that the government. <laughs> so that's why government is so determined, uh, even as a very ground field organization, 
to transform. Right? But we have to deal with a lot of the same kind of questions in terms of governance structures and how you do procurement, how you bring resources in, how we track progress, what kind of money we're allowed to spend, um, all those same kinds of issues. And that's, uh, it's, a big, it's a big problem for a lot of companies. There's a lot of consultants out there who make a lot of money telling people how to do it, but it's, it's a life and death issue for a lot of companies. There, I, there was a fascinating uh, piece in the New York Times a couple weekends ago about the, the director of Google X, their lab. And I've been thinking about this since I read the article. He basically gives his teams bonuses when they own up to failure early in the piece because he reckons their their kind of conservative nature will try they'll try and hide that they're not sort of going very well. They'll hire a bunch of consultants to sort of tell them what they already know, and he'll it's actually cheaper for them to. Give them a bonus for admitting that it's not working. I was trying to say, how do I how do I bring this into the university? I think what I learned from that was that's the kind of culture and environment uh, that will sort of empower our colleagues to 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 take some of the intellectual and and, and, and business risks that uh, you know Australia will need uh, in the coming years as we well we're already there transitioning into a very different uh, economic uh, order. Uh, so it's going to be things like that that are going to break probably the mold in, in different ways in, in people's own context. So Duncan, there are two layers to that. The first is permission to fail, yeah. and the second is fail fast. Yeah. Well, not so to learn from it. We have a word in the startup ecosystem called FLIR. Sounds a little bit odd, I know, but failure, failure and learning. And if you actually put those two things together, that's absolutely what you need to do. But it also kind of takes away from this sort of connotation that we've had beaten into us from school onwards that failure is a bad thing. No, failure is only a bad thing if you don't do something differently from the experience. The other thing um, might surprise you, the Murudi process... We work with innovative companies every single day of our jobs. That's all we do. We have not yet run the same process more than once because we want to make it better and we always want to improve it and we always want to make sure that it's as extraordinary as it can be to help the entrepreneurs that we invest in. So why would I run the same process again? I know it worked, but I want it to be even better. So each time we run the Meridian process, I, I think conservatively, we probably change at least 30%. So that's your challenge in your day jobs, is how can I do the same thing as I did last week or last month or last year, but make it even better? And if you're repeating the same process that you did last week or last month or last year, then to Paul's point, at some point, it's not going to be good enough anymore. So you have to keep adding those improvements. Well, that, that actually leads into an interesting question about managing uh, or measuring innovation performance and how, how you can do that. So there's the continuous innovation, but what about, um, you know, there's the transformative innovation as well. So how, how do you go about measuring that? It's tough, right, because a lot of what we're talking about here is quite esoteric. It's, it's soft skills and... and allowing people or empowering people to go and change things or, or to, to make experiments. So it's always going to be hard to measure it. So I think you've always got to have probably a, a you know, the, I don't want to say balance score count, that sounds rubbish. Um, let's go with a balance of short-term goals of are you moving quickly enough? How quickly are you learning? Are you running an experiment on this, whatever it is that you're trying to build? once a week or once every day ideally so that you can continuously improve 
but what's your long-term objective? What's the impact that you really want to drive? How are you going to change this little part of the world that you're trying to change? And if you keep both of those metrics moving, then you're more than likely going to head in the right direction. So, I mean, universities are thinking a lot about impact now and the impact of our work. And I think there's two things that we're sort of having to struggle with and trying to figure out. One is, of course, universities shouldn't be in the game of, of, of short-term uh, uh, impact. We should be chasing big game, the big questions that are going to take <coughs> a long, hard uh, trail to, 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 to follow. At the same time, if you're a cancer researcher, if you're uh, if you're interested in communications, if you're doing work uh, in, uh, in, in, in now technology, you want to see your ideas out in the world making a difference. So, and the government wants us to, to get our ideas out in the world and make a difference. So I think for us it's really understanding what our role is in the broader ecosystem. And I think ultimately universities need to hold themselves up against the really big challenges that our world faces today. And it's the sort of transformative, creative innovation that I mentioned earlier that we really need to keep focused on. Of course, we're producing extraordinary students who will go out and hopefully you'll hire them uh, and, and they'll do wonderful things for you. But I think it's really important that we understand the different kinds of innovation. And it would be a real mistake to think there's a single metric or a single measure that a prime minister or a vice chancellor can stand up and say, ah, oh, now we know we're innovating because we've hit that, hit that metric. I think it's going to be diverse. I think different parts of the, of the community are going to need different things, and we all have a role to play in that. But it's, it's a really interesting question, actually. I mean, sure, nothing happens if you can't measure it, but sometimes the most meaningful things are not easy, easily measurable. And, and I think we need to remember that uh, when, in our kind of metrics-obsessed uh, age. That's, that's a really useful insight. Um, what, what about this notion, too, of entrepreneurs versus entrepreneurs? You've got the startup entrepreneurs, but what about in entrepreneurs and how they need to consider? I'm going to kick off with talking about the skill set that qualifies an individual to regard themselves or have others regard them as being entrepreneurial. And I think they're the same as entrepreneurial, we're just talking about different environments. Um, and fundamentally, it's about uh, the capacity. Uh, or appetite for risk. Uh, it's about uh, a curiosity uh, to learn. It's about exploring the world. It's a tenacity. It's critical thinking skills, the capacity to communicate and express those to others. Uh, a whole uh, mindset of creativity and innovation, and they package up into clusters of what I describe as very complex skills. By the way, those skills are really important to, let me use the term, future-proofing our careers because those complex skills together, the collaboration, the appetite for risk, the resilience, and that means dealing with ambiguity, for those skills that are very hard for computers to emulate um, and probably undesirable uh, for computers to do that because it's the human interaction. Uh, that becomes really important to how we're going to engage. So tapping into those skills and encouraging uh, within organisations individuals to be building those skills, in brackets like strategy, entrepreneurialism is very hard to train for. Uh, it's a set that's often considered to be innate 
but giving people the environment where they can grow those skills, I think, is critical for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. That, that's a, uh, that leads into a question of how do we educate for this? It's a good question because um, I was literally just as you were speaking, and I go, totally agree with you. And isn't it insane? We don't teach that in schools. No, and we should. They're absolutely essentially. They're called soft skills, which sort of makes them a little bit uh, dark as a target for organisations. We want to deliver on technical skills and performance and those bottom line elements. Um, so soft skills is really a misnomer because they're actually critical skills for life. And yes, we should be teaching them. In the work that I was doing at Sydney University, we were looking at employability and work readiness of graduates. And we describe that as, as equipping individuals for their life's work and the contribution that they're about to make. They actually are more important than the technical skills that have a very short shelf life. Um, there's a big use-by date across most technical skills. We know in medicine, by the time you get to year four, you're revising what you learnt in year one. Um, same in pharma, uh, as John talked to. So how do we go about embedding those life skills, those what I describe as enduring transferable skills. And you know, what onus does the, an organisation have uh, a duty of care to their people to ensure that they're helping them to build those skills whilst at the same time taking the benefit of those incremental improvements in capability. And I think that the addition I'd make to that is none of us now can just say my career is done, I, I just need to learn this thing and then I can work in it for 30 years, 40 years, whatever, and then I can go sit, and, sit on the beach and have a beer. It isn't like that anymore. Uh, kids going to school right now and going through university know that they have to keep topping that, that up, that learning up because they need to stay relevant. Interestingly, um, I, I run a non-profit called Code Club which helps to, to bring coding into primary schools and we target sort of 9 to 11 year old kids. They are so damn good at this, They're so, they pick it up so quickly. I also ran a very similar version of this at um, Parliament House in Canberra and the, the, the stark difference between a bunch of 9 year olds and people who weren't nine years old anymore and frankly the, the, the whole thing to them was just I don't understand it I don't even know where to start and if I tap the buttons or something blow up whereas the kids are just coding away and loving it the interesting thing that they learn from learning to code is collaboration problem solving and creativity collaboration problem solving and creativity things that they can take with them in any path that they choose to follow whether it be in a coding uh, or a technical skill later on in their lives. And I think that's the, the crux that we're both saying here is creativity, problem solving and, and collaboration, all of these things are so important for any job that you choose to do. And we do need to be teaching more of it in schools. And we don't even know which jobs we're going to be choosing. This is in the public domain now. That a 30-year-old is on average going to have five distinct careers and on average 17 roles. The average tenure at the moment for a 30-year-old is 28 months. And when you think about how long it takes to onboard them, um, how long they're disengaged before they leave, it gives us a window of peak performance of about seven minutes. <laughs> so how do we equip people for the uncertainty 
that comes with the future of work, which also, by the way, is a misnomer. It is no longer the future of work. It is right here and right now. The other thing I'd add is, I think this is a great uh, audience to, 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 in a sense, issue a kind of follow action, because I think universities have to reinvent their undergraduate programs in particular, and a lot of that's happening in Sydney. The University of Sydney and New South, uh, UTS, it's very exciting. Um, but my plea is, having spent a lot of time talking to employers, Australia has a very often functional approach to hiring. I remember sitting in the office of a, of a very senior uh, banking executive saying to me, what would, I want to, what would I do with an anthropologist? Well, we have one answer now. But what would I do with an historian? What would I do with a physicist? Uh, and, and, and my response is, uh, you will uh, gain more than you can ever imagine by thinking differently about the skills that your company or your business can benefit from and, and, and nurturing and bringing that kind of talent into your organization. And, and we have to do a job of getting our students to think differently about uh, what their education should look like and the breadth, and not only depth, that they need to leave the university ready uh, to contribute in, in all these uh, diverse ways. So uh, I think there's a fantastic joint project between uh, the universities and uh, government and business to really work together to create these pathways for our young people. I mean, 40% uh, of the jobs that exist today will be gone um, in, in you know, 10, 15 years. It's already happening now. Luckily, priests and philosophers will remain required. So as a professional Sorry, philosopher, as a professional philosopher, I'm relieved that that It's interesting you should say that, because Paul and I were talking earlier. We think it should be about STEAM rather than STEM. Yeah, yeah. The arts part of that is really important. People sometimes ask me what I found most useful in my university studies, and I always answer with the same two subjects. The first is philosophy, because having a framework for thinking is absolutely enduring and, again, transferable. Once we know how to think, uh, the world opens up to us. The second is psychology, uh, because, uh, and particularly child psychology, because that served me really well in learning how to deal with leaders and managers in the working <laughs> life. Uh, some things never change, and they were two very practical um, things that I've studied that you wouldn't necessarily think that you were going to recruit off, you know, a career in philosophy. Um, I think it's a case of watch this space. Interesting to say that. So the, the first job I had managing a technical team. Um, I learned very quickly not to hire people uh, who had lots and lots of qualifications, uh, who came to me with their certification on this and their testing on that and everything else and their degree in this, uh, because those skills very, very quickly uh, became irrelevant over a very short period of time. And also because they tended to identify themselves through their degree with that particular thing, and they actually would tend to resist any further, uh, any, 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 any changes in the technical infrastructure they're working on because they just love that so much. Um, and I learned it was much more interesting to hire people who were able to think in a systemic manner, uh, or sociology, or anthropology, or any of theologies, um, and teach them, and keep them interested. And that became the highest performing team of that. Although, you know, we just had to change what we hired. That's great, and uh, that's open it to questions from the floor.